Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Alpha Chat, the business and economics podcast of the Financial Times. This is the great investors make their own luck, and sometimes they're made by their luck episode. I'm Cardiff Garcia. And I'm Shannon Bond. On the show today, a deep and probing chat with Michael Mobison, author of The Success Equation, a book about how we should understand the role of skill versus luck for the outcomes in our lives. He's also the head of global financial strategies at Credit Suisse, and he came in to discuss a paper he wrote last year for Credit Suisse about the 10 attributes of great fundamental investors. But the paper was also a reflective take on his 30-year career, what he's learned about investing, and also how he incorporates his fascination with psychology and the quirks of human behavior into his work. He's a great guest, and I really enjoyed this conversation. But first, uh, Shannon, how are you? Hey, Cardiff. So I have to start with a kind of preemptive apology. Uh, my chat with Michael ran really long, justifiably so, because it was so interesting. But it does mean that you and I don't get to hang out as much in this week's episode. That's okay. I'm sort of stuck in Super Bowl hell this week and next week. So Super Bowl hell. That's right. You probably don't have time for us anyways. There's a lot of ads to write about. But since I wasn't here for the chat, I'd love to hear what the highlights were. Yeah. So uh, as I said at the top, Michael wrote this piece on the 10 attributes of great fundamental investors. Uh, but the paper itself includes so much of what he's learned over 30 years of doing what he does. It included ideas from psychology, from sociology, not just finance and economics, which is usually my bread and butter. Um, so it just made for a really, really fascinating conversation. He just happens to be one of these very thoughtful guys uh, that you don't come across very often. And so it was just really great to have him in. All right. Look forward to hearing it. Shannon and I will be back with long-form recommendations after my chat with Michael. So stick around for that. Uh, but for now, here it is. And I'm here with Michael Mobison. We're going to talk about 30 years, reflections on the 10 attributes of great investors. Michael, thanks so much for coming in. Great to be with you. Okay. Before we get to the 10 attributes of great fundamental investors, uh, I actually want to talk about two points of skepticism that you raise in the beginning of the paper, right? The first one is about accountancy, right? Now, accounting is the language that companies use to communicate how well they're doing, right? At least in theory. But you write about how towards the beginning of your career, you realize that it's not enough to tell a useful economic story of the company. Uh, tell us about that. Well, Cardiff, you know, we share an alma mater. I was a liberal arts major. I came onto Wall Street uh, unencumbered with any knowledge of finance and business, which, uh, which is interesting. For our listeners, so- <laughs> by the way, that's the Georgetown Hoyas. All right. Um, I was actually an accounting major myself, so I'm curious to hear your, your so take that, on this. That's your question, I guess. <laughs> um, so I came in and I found, uh, I, I mean, everything was new to me, but I found that 
the Wall Street community then, and even to some degree today is true, was replete with old wives' tales and rules of thumb and so forth. So I was, uh, I was you know, really mixed up. I was given a book in 1987 by my mentor, Al Rappaport, called Creating Shareholder Value. And this was the book that made it all click. This was my professional epiphany. And he made a couple points that were so powerful to me. The first was that accounting numbers don't really represent economic value. And this seems to be a lesson that we learn and relearn from time to time, right? So our earnings representative of economic value. Sometimes earnings growth is good. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's in between. So understanding that distinction is really crucial. And that immediately then gets into discussion about multiples, earnings, multiples, enterprise value, EBITDA, and so on and so forth. So, so the Rappaport point was you need to take one step beyond the accounting numbers to really understand economic value. And that made enormous amounts of sense to me. And that has been sort of a, a motivating thought throughout my work in the last 30 years. There's a more foundational issue here too, though. A big part of your career has been spent studying – uh, epistemological issues, the knowability of things. And that seems to be uh, part of the approach you took to accounting and part of the reason for your skepticism. I'm wondering if you thought in the late 1980s or and in the early 90s, um, whether you sense that there was a lack of that, a lack of scrutiny about the very knowability of uh, what you can glean from numbers, what you can glean from you know, official uh, statements, from company statements. Uh, did you sense that there just wasn't quite enough of that on Wall Street? Yeah, I think there's still – that element is still true today, which is going back to first principles and, and trying to understand everything from the point of view of first principles. And it's interesting that you know if you're, you join Wall Street, to, even today as a college student, you t- typically look to the left and look to the right and basically do what everybody else is doing. And there's often not that phase where you're saying, why am I doing it this way? Are there better ways to do it and so forth? The second thing for me that was also very important was uh, fairly early on I started teaching at Columbia Business School. And, you know, it's like saying, if I say, Carter, if you want to teach a course at Columbia, you know, your first reaction might be, that's not so hard. I just sort of watch myself for you know, a while, and then I make some PowerPoint slides on what I do all day, and then I communicate it. Well, the challenge is if you do that properly, it forces introspection, and you ask, why am I doing it this way? Are there other ways that I could do it even more effectively? So that was a combination of these two things where, you know, making sure that uh, that introspection along with really – going back to, to first principles. And, and again, I think it's better today in, in part because the academic research also supports things. But for the most part, people don't necessarily think a lot about what they're doing and the way they should be doing it. You write about your experience teaching in the paper. Uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the old menacing threat that's sometimes issued to philosophers <laughs> who tend to speak in these very inscrutable terms um, and the threat is, well, I'm going to send to you a young person, right? And then you're going to have to be responsible for either their bewilderment or for the wrong things that they do, which I guess sort of forces you to make sure that you have a lot of clarity on your own thinking. I mean, I totally agree with that. And that's if someone were uninitiated with what we're trying to do, what would be the best way to have them go about it? And, you know, the other thing about Columbia, and by the way, I'm starting my, this is end of January, I'll be starting my, my 25th year of teaching this class tomorrow. Security so, analysis. Security analysis, Yeah. And that course was originally taught by Ben Graham. So there's this incredible uh, legacy tradition. And uh, the question I always posed to myself was, what would a contemporary Ben Graham teach now? Well, if he were around, what would he teach? So that, that's, that's also very much uh, an animating uh, element for me to think about what are, what are the best ways to approach this. And we have a couple mottos in the class. And you know, one is the motto of the Royal Society, which basically says – uh, think for yourself, right? Nullius and verba. Think for yourself. Don't let other people tell you what's going on. Figure it out, right? So I love that as a, as a 
encouragement for people to think about things. First principles, just don't rely on what other people tell you. Let me uh, bring up the second point of skepticism uh, that you raise in the book, which is uh, about market efficiency. You write that you've spent a lot of time thinking about, and then this is your quote, how pockets of inefficiency manifest. Uh, you definitely have to be at least a partial skeptic of market efficiency uh, in order for a list like this one, like yours, to even exist. Because, of course, if markets were either perfectly efficient or even if they were efficient enough, there could be no such thing as a great fundamental investor, right? Those would, be, right. Those would be contradictions. There are various forms of uh, market efficiency that are, that are studied, um, weak form, semi-strong form, the strong form. Without getting too much into the details of that, I guess I'm wondering how you've always thought about reconciling the tension between, on the one hand, seeing that there are times when the market is not efficient and therefore there are opportunities to exploit, versus believing that eventually the market will be efficient and it will reflect the value of the company because you also need that in order to be a great investor because if not, then the prices will never go in your direction. Exactly. There's a, there was a really, um, I think, seminal paper written in 1980 that's motivated a lot of my thinking around this, and it's uh, by Sandy Grossman and Joe Stiglitz called On the Impossibility of Informationally Efficient Markets. The on impossibility. The, on the impossibility of informationally efficient markets. And what's interesting about that is, you know, 1980, if you sort of look at the calendar of, of thinking on efficient markets, the 70s was probably the height of enthusiasm for the efficient market hypothesis, Right. And so these guys were writing, writing this in a period when, when the enthusiasm for this concept was very high. And their argument was very straightforward. And they said, there is a cost to gather information and reflect it in prices. And for someone to assume that cost, there must be a requisite benefit in the form of market inefficiency. And you can argue these things balance each other out, but there always have to be inefficiencies in order for people to go out and do this. So Lasse Pedersen, a professor, has got this great phrase where he says, markets are efficiently inefficient. Right? There's got to be enough inefficiency to encourage people to go out and do this work, but by very, very active doing this work, they make markets more efficient. So that's always got to continue to some degree. And that's the crux of the issue when we debate active versus indexing. This, this is a, sort of the whole blanket idea. So, And by the way, the other interesting component to introduce to this is how much of market inefficiencies are because of what they call it, social psychological or sociological phenomenon, human behavior, basically. And you know, if you accept the notion that humans aren't going to change their, change their behaviors as collectives that much going forward, I think we'll always have these episodes of extreme optimism or extreme pessimism. And those are not inherent to new technologies or information dissemination. They're just inherent to human beings interacting with one another. Uh, there's no question that it's very challenging to beat the market. That's been known for a very long time. But by the same token, uh, we always have to have some inefficiencies in order to encourage people to, to try to beat it. And the very beating of it makes it efficient. Okay, great. Let's do this now. Let's go through each of the 10 attributes of great fundamental investors. Sound good? Sounds great. Number one, be numerate and understand accounting. So right off the bat, contradicting what you said in the intro. <laughs> well, I think there's a distinction between understanding accounting and understanding how you can take those accounting statements and translate those into economic value. And that's really what it's about. And, you know, I think that numeracy is obviously essential to, to thinking about the world of investing. It's not highfalutin math or highfalutin calculus, but you do have to be comfortable with numbers and being able to manipulate those. There are some interesting, famous examples. Um, Richard Sloan wrote a really celebrated paper probably about 20, 25 years ago on accruals, right? And you may recall this. It basically said companies that use a lot of accruals, it's a fancy way of saying that your, your earnings aren't as good as your cash flows. 
those companies, the stocks tend not to do that well. And companies where the cash flows are really representative of the earnings, those companies tend to do better, right? So looking at the earnings, you would not know that. But introducing accruals, which is a little bit more numeracy, you start to get a better look at things. The the interesting point to me about this particular attribute is that knowing accounting also helps you to gauge the sincerity of a company's management. Because if they say that their strategy is A, but they're spending money at a rate that suggests their strategy is B, then at the very least, you know that you have to ask some pretty tough questions and you know to at least be skeptical. That's right. And the other thing I'll say about managements, and and this is all completely within normal gap accounting and so forth, but management has a lot of discretion in how they choose certain things, right? Things like depreciation schedules or warranty reserves or so forth. So, So they're making, in a sense, some commentary about the future, but there's some discretion how they do that, right? So they can do that in a way that makes them look better than they really are or a way that's more honest. So I agree with all what we said. Just make, yeah. Great. Uh, let's go to number two. And this one is understand value and in parentheses, the present value of free cash flow. And you've got this quote here from Alan Rappaport, your mentor. He says, quote, remember, cash is a fact. Profit is an opinion. Look, the value of any financial asset, stock, bond, real estate, doesn't matter. There are three questions you have to ask and answer. One is, what are the cash flows going to be? Second, when am I getting them? And third is, how certain are they? And basically, everything else is a riff off those basic questions. So I think there's some interesting things going on in the world today. Um, One is the fact that most of what we talk about is what I would call income statement-centric. We spend a lot of time talking about sales and profits and we spend less time talking about investments that go onto the balance sheet, right? So when you're calculating free cash flow or, or the cash available for distribution to all the claim holders, integrating the balance sheet is actually really crucial. Now, there's one other comment that's really interesting and talk about 30 years. The world has and continues to migrate away from one based on physical assets to one based on more intangible assets. And intangible investments, for example, research and development, are expensed on the income statement. So, so we're still seeing companies invest fairly aggressively, but where they're investing is shifting from the balance sheet to the income statement. And one, one uh, little stat I love to give on this is that Microsoft's research and development is roughly two times their capex. So when you say, are they, spending, are they investing? The answer is yes, but it's not in the traditional spot. One other thing I'll mention is Brooke Lev, professor of accounting at New York University, wrote a, wrote a book about a year ago called The End of Accounting. And one of the core claims there is as we migrate from tangible to intangible assets, that earnings themselves are less reliable. So that's really an interesting provocation is this very underlying shift is leading to our most used metrics to become less useful. Let me ask you a question about how you go about looking at a company's earnings. Um, Because there is a kind of convention, especially in the financial media, of reporting on earnings right away. So you might turn on CNBC, you might even read the pages of the FT, a line that says something like GE had a bad quarter based on earnings. Do you just completely ignore that kind of thing and take a more deliberate approach and take a couple of days before you actually decide whether GE has had a good or a bad quarter? How do you actually look at it? Well, I I think as a first order, there might be some information there. But exactly to your point, you really do want to unpack that to some degree. Often you'll hear analysts when they decompose an earnings number will come back and say the quality was high or the quality was low. And usually what they mean when the quality was high or low is they're saying there are cash flows to back it up, quality was high, 
where there weren't cash flows to back it up, quality is low. So I think the market tends to sort through those things fairly quickly. But you're exactly right. You know, a, a headline number that's above or below in and of itself is, is uh, I mean, right. if I had nothing else, I would rely on that. But I'd want to go a step or two beyond. So most analysts, most investors understand this quality issue. And that gets to that gets to your point. The, the other thing I'll say, by the way, when we talk about, you know, Rappaport's comment that, you know, cash is a fact. One of the things we love to look at is the so-called total shareholder yield. So this takes buybacks plus dividends divided by the market capitalization. And interestingly, if you look at that series, so this is how much money basically the company can return to you. And if you look at that series over a long period of time, say 35, 40 years, it's actually pretty stable. So the proclivity of companies to return capital to their shareholders in dividends and buybacks is actually a relatively stable, much more stable series than earnings and so forth. So that's that's another interesting thought that I, I think goes into that understand value bucket. This is a bit of a weedy follow-up question there. Uh, but when you when you look at that number, uh, do you also adjust for debt loads that might make it easier for companies to return dividends and buybacks? No, but we don't know. So we don't look at that. Now, this is just we're looking at we're looking at return to equity holders divided by equity capitalization, right? So right. it's equity over equity, okay. so it's consistent. Got but it. what, what we do do which is along the same lines of your, as your question you posed, is we look at net of equity issuance, mm-hmm. right? So it might be the case that XYZ company gives it tons of options, uh, and then they buy back stock, but their buyback is just offset the options, and so and it shows up at our, as a return of capital, but in a sense, all they're doing is compensating for, it's another, another backdoor way of compensating. Oh, right, yeah, I was just trying to figure out how to think about uh, the metric you just mentioned versus the shifts in capital allocation over time. Yeah. Um, okay, cool. Uh, let's go to number three, properly assess strategy or how a business makes mm-hmm. money. You know, um, one of the benefits of teaching Columbia Business School over many years uh, is the opportunity to, or at least in the olden days, when Warren Buffett, who was our, probably our most famous graduate, would come to campus, I would get to sit in the back of the room and listen to the conversation. So, and he does what he always does, 20 minutes of sort of upfront and then two hours of Q&A. So, you know, and so a number of years ago, a student raises his hand and he says, Mr. Buffett, if there's one thing you could understand about a company, one number, one metric, one thing, what would it be? And without hesitation, he said, sustainable competitive advantage. And that sort of hit me in the head. I'm thinking to myself, you know, it's interesting. Here's probably the world's greatest fundamental investor the last 50 years saying this is the most important single metric. And yet I, I challenge you to pick up an analyst report or something in the news media where people actually talk about this in any great depth. The answer is it's not happening, right? So – so this is this idea of stressing strategy is thinking about what is going on with this sector, what is going on with this industry, and in particular, how does this company fit into this whole thing? And do they have some sort of sustainable competitive advantage or not? So there's obviously a huge body of literature on this. What we try to do is, in our work is to distill it down to a sort of a process, a funnel process to try to analyze that. But understanding how a company makes money and what their competitive advantage looks like is absolutely essential. And, and if there, there are lots of businesses that make money in ways that are sort of uh, cryptic, uh, opaque. And those are things that probably you should avoid. <laughs> right. It's squishy and a little bit less tangible, but so important. And it also strikes me that your points about a company's strategy also can be related to your skepticism about market efficiency. Because you can believe that the current price of a security does, in fact, reflect all past and all current public and private information. But the facts that everybody has about what a company plans to do and how well that'll work out will always be subject to interpretation. 
right? So that's something that a securities price can never fully get right, can never quite incorporate, in part because those facts change over time. Right. And, you know, so the book I ended up writing with Rappaport was called Expectations Investing. And the core idea was extremely simple, which is prices reflect a set of expectations about future financial performance. And that's what it's about. So that's exactly right. And we don't really know what the future holds. So you could probably say something like prices may not be perfectly right, but they're, they're not systematically wrong. Something like that. That might be a softer way to say the same thing, that it's hard to beat the market. Okay. You shift into a kind of a psychological framework for these next few. Uh, so let's go to number four. Compare effectively expectations versus fundamentals. You know, this is such a fascinating topic about how we just compare things in life. And uh, so investing, obviously, this is core. So the first, the first point is this idea of fundamentals versus expectations, which you just raised. And I think that the, the biggest mistake I see in the investment industry is a failure to distinguish between fundamentals and expectations. So what do those things mean? Expectations are, what are what's reflected in the current asset price. As a metaphor, you would say, what are the odds on the tote board for the horse race? Right? So there are odds on the tote board. That's the likelihood of that horse winning the race. The fundamentals are how the company is going to perform, or to extend our metaphor, is how fast the horse will run. And the way you make money in markets is not predicting winners. It's finding mispricings between expectations and fundamentals. And that is the most important thing. As humans, when things are going well, we want to buy. And when things are going poorly, we want to sell. When there's a triple crown contender, the money comes out of everybody's wallets to bet on it, on the horse, right? Whereas almost always that's a bad bet. So the key is to always make that distinction as clear as humanly possible. So this is this idea of comparing. So that's, I think that's the core idea. But comparing is something that spills over to almost everything. One business versus that, and stocks versus bonds, active versus passive. And you go on and on about the kinds of comparisons that we make without necessarily being overt in our thought processes. Let's go to number five. Think probabilistically. There are a few sure things. <laughs> Gotta like that, right? <laughs> so in investing, like and you already alluded to it about the future and plans of companies, we don't really know what the outcomes are going to be. So the question is, uh, can we start to think about potential outcomes and assign reasonable probabilities to doing those things? And investing then translates into a, an exercise of finding things where the expected value is attractive, so saying it more, more simply, more good things can happen or, or more good values can happen than bad values, something like that. So often you hear people talk about my target for companies is, you know, it's $60 based on 20 times earnings of $3 or something like that. So there's like a single point forecast. And that really belies the, the, the richness of distributions that we see in the real world. So the encouragement here is to think about everything probabilistically. You know, interestingly, if you go to things like poker players or blackjack players, any sort of gambling, they do this very naturally because this is part of what they do. Investors, many of them do, but many of them don't do as much of this as they probably should. Okay. There's a quote underneath this point um, of yours that I want to read to our listeners. You write, the frequency of correctness does not really matter. What matters is how much money you make when you are right versus how much money you lose when you are wrong. That's the end of the quote. And then you say that loss aversion, the way that people experience loss, tends to make the application of this idea really, really hard. So 
this probably happens to you too. Uh, I occasionally get contacted by college students, you know, looking for jobs and so forth. And the student contacted me over the summer and he said, I just finished a training program at this bank and they bring in the old wizened people to talk about the world. And this guy said, in our business, if you can be right 53% of the time, you're going to do great. And I'm thinking to myself, that's really bad advice, (laughs) right? Because it really doesn't matter how frequently you're right. What matters is how much money you make. You could have eight straight failures, 100% losses across the board, but if your next, if your ninth attempt is a huge success, it's okay. Precisely. So I was reading, there's a book, and one of the colleagues of George Soros uh, made this comment that he said, I believe that George Soros made money on fewer than 30% of his trades. Mm-hmm. And he's obviously a billionaire many times over. So how does that work? And the answer is when he was wrong, he basically sold his positions fairly quickly. And when he was right, he let it run to a big, huge profit, right? So it's not really frequency of correctness. It's magnitude times frequency, right? Now, your point on loss aversion is actually really crucial. So this is one of the things we know from the heuristics and uh, and from prospect theory is that we suffer losses more than we enjoy comparable size gains, so if you lose ten dollars, you suffer roughly twice as much as if you as you enjoy a comparable ten dollar gain. So we don't like to lose. So psychologically, that point, while mathematically irrefutable, is not comfortable. We'd rather be right about things than wrong about things. So that's where that I think that fifty three percent statement comes from. So that's a really interesting challenge because the math says this is okay, but psychologically very uncomfortable. Let me have a quick interlude here um, about how young people ask you um, how to get to where you are. Uh, You're right. I do get this question a lot, and I'm always a little bit at a loss uh, on what to say because the path I took to where I am now was so circuitous, and uh, it was impossible for me to predict before it actually happened. You know, in your case, uh, you started your career at companies either that don't exist anymore or that were absorbed by other companies, right? What do you say, and I'm especially curious to know if you apply your own work on the disentanglement of luck versus skill when you tell people what they should do with themselves? Yeah, well, having, by the way, having one kid out of college, one kid who's a senior in college, this is not, this is not a theoretical question. This is actually <laughs> something I think a fair bit about, right? But um, look, I think the reality is there's so much luck. You mentioned circuitous route. I mean, for me, the same exact path. So there's not much to say is to find something you think you're going to be, you're going to be interested in doing and uh, go out there and just work hard and figure it out. Now, one of the things that I think I mentioned in this piece that, that I often do share with young people is I went to a training program at Drexel Burnham Lambert, now defunct. It was a very hot firm at the time. The training program was fantastic. It was 18 months, a lot of classroom work, uh, a lot of rotations through different departments. So if you didn't know who you were, you were going to find yourself, whether it was on a trading desk or doing research or what have you. But that job led to be a, a financial advisor, a broker. And I did that job for about a year and was an abject failure. Horrible. Like, really bad at it. And so, in a sense, my career was marked both by that experience of learning about different facets of finance, but also within two or three years of my working world, huge failure. Mm-hmm. So that's it's a little bit humbling, but it also made me realize doing something you don't want to be doing is really a bad. Even when you're young, is a bad idea. So from there, um, I was able just to to follow. And and by the way, you know, having people like Al Rappaport 
come into my life, just first intellectually and then getting to know him. Having certain mentors as I've grown up in the business been extremely helpful, right? So these guys, mostly in these cases, guys, incredibly useful for allowing me to do much of what I'd like to do. So I, incredibly lucky, no question. And the best thing you do is control what you can control, right? So work hard and be diligent and so forth. But um, do what you like to do and eventually uh, hope to be lucky. That's exactly that's, that's some, right. some variation of what I tell people. Too. That's right. I think that's all right. <laughs> uh, let's go to number six. Uh, update your views effectively. Beliefs or hypotheses to be tested, not treasures to be protected. Isn't that a great line, by the way? That's from Phil Tetlock's book, Super Forecasting. So one of the hardest things to do in the world of investing is to update your views as new information comes in. So everything essentially is a sort of a tentative of belief. New information comes in, and you're supposed to revise your views. Now, the reason we don't do it in the real world is something called confirmation bias. Even if you've struggled to come up with a point of view, once you've decided on something, you tend to seek information that confirms your point of view and dismiss, disavow, or discount information that doesn't conform your, your point of view. And so that's really a really difficult thing to do. So, so this idea of being actively open-minded, not only willing to entertain points of view that are different than yours, but in a sense seeking them and then updating your views as appropriate, really re- that mental flexibility, it, it's hard and it's actually uh, psychologically also quite taxing. Because once it's like you've handed in your term paper, you just want the professor to give you an A and not to have to worry about it. But in, in our world, every day you're getting graded and every day you have to change what you've written, change your thesis and so forth. So that's a really, really important task. Um, I had mentioned Tetlock in the book Super Forecasting. The other thing that's interesting is that Tetlock examined thousands of people making these kinds of political, economic and, and social forecasts. And one of the things they found was those super forecasters, people who are really good at this, tend to update their probabilities more frequently and with greater granularity than the regular forecasters. So this is not just for show. They're actually more willing to take new information in and incorporate it into their prior views and adjust as appropriate. And by the way, for those that are listening, the fancy way to think, say all this is Bayesian. It's Bayesian updating, so you based on Bayes' theorem. But you don't have to use the fancy math to understand the basic concept is have a view, new information, change it as appropriate. Yeah. All, uh, as you said, easier said than done. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this point reminded me of uh, something I read in – the book by Robert Cialdini, the uh, psychologist of persuasion, he said that an initial commitment is a really potent thing and very hard to walk away from. And in particular, there's something very powerful about writing something down that makes us really averse to changing our minds. And it can be just putting our signature to something or actually writing down whatever the principle is, right? Whatever the commitment is. And that over time, it seems like the only way to undo it is to write down the exact opposite. Yeah. Right? <laughs> right? But, but even then, it's just really <laughs> difficult, uh, and it's, it's something that we psychologically veer away from. Well, that absolutely all that's true. And the other thing is, in societally, consistency is deemed to be a good thing. Right? If a politician takes one side of it, takes a point of view, and then he or she flips, you say they're a flip-flopper even though they may be going from the wrong side to the correct side, right? So, so consistency is something that we tend to prize in people. It's not something we tend to, okay, so that's another challenge in all this is that if you're, you're going to be called inconsistent, even if, they're, even if you're just following the truth, the path of truth. Uh, let me take a different approach to number seven, which is beware of behavioral <laughs> biases, minimizing constraints to good thinking. You've already brought up a few uh, behavioral biases, so let me ask the question this way. 
Which behavioral bias has troubled you the most in your career and that you've struggled to overcome? I think there, the, there are two, the two big ones in the world of investing. Uh, the first is overconfidence. And overconfidence says we tend to believe that we know more about the world than we actually do. And the way that often is manifest in investing is we project ranges of outcomes, goes back to our uncertainty comment before, that are too narrow. So if you ask an analyst, um, how will this stock or company perform, tell me, you know, one year from now, three years from now, often you'll get ranges that are vastly, just, just statistically vastly too narrow. So they're overconfident in their own capabilities. So that's, I think that's a huge one. And you have to constantly battle that by making sure you're thinking about other ranges of possibilities. Introducing history, for example, helps do that as well. The second one is one we've already talked about, and that's confirmation bias. So again, it's like if you're, you're an investor and you haven't fallen for the confirmation bias, I don't believe you, right? Because we all do it. So it's a question of degree. So those, I think, are the two big ones that come right to mind. But you know, there are all sorts of other things that are important, anchoring, framing, all these things. Every investor, A, should know about them. All, all people should know about them. And secondly, and I think this is the most important thing, is you should think about methods and techniques to manage or mitigate them. So it's not enough just to know about it. It's really important to say, what can I do to offset it? You mentioned this. I want to write down my point of view. Maybe I write down the opposite point of view. Just maybe that act alone opens your mind to some degree. So, so it's not just learning about the heuristics and biases. It's learning about methods to manage them. Uh, do you, since you think about this so often, do you ever have moments where you either walk out of a meeting or maybe it's right after you've fired off an email where you think, nope, I just fell for it again. You know, I, I yeah. just fell for it again. I need to walk that back. I, uh, this happens to me nonstop, by the way. But um, I, do, I do try to be aware of it. But, I mean, if, if you're just going through your day-to-day life, it's going to happen to you, right? No, I mean, it's hard, hard to avoid it. So that's, is, that, and that's the whole point of Kahneman thinking fast and slow. Is this is your, the natural path of your mind. It's Danny Kahneman. Danny you know, Kahneman. Great yeah. book that summarizes uh, work and Thanks. career, thinking fast and slow. Great book. Right. And so that's, that would be the Kahneman argument. And uh, yeah, we're, we're all up against it all the time. Okay. Number eight is know the difference between information and influence. And you're right that this is where it's actually helpful not to care what anybody else thinks of you. Awfully tough to do, right? If you're a normal person, not a not a psychopath. Also, not yeah, not something that you would want to apply all the time in your life. <laughs> exactly. So, what we know in economics is that prices convey very useful information. I mean, if you you don't think a lot about it or take a lot of it for granted, but if you bought your coffee this morning or went to a grocery store, those prices are conveying information about things, and those are important information for suppliers as well as, as well as people purchasing. And the stock market, as already mentioned, and prices reflect a set of expectations. That's incredibly useful. The challenge in markets is that from time to time, people look at those prices and it, and it flips over from being just a source of information to a source of influence. And you could think of, you know, just a simple example would be the dot-com phenomenon. So here you are, 1997, 1998, and you think these internet stocks seem like the valuation seem very rich, very expensive, but your next door neighbor is just killing it. The guy owns all these things, is making lots of money. And every day, every, every Saturday morning comes over, it's like, hey, Cardiff, how's it going? I got richer this week, Right. Then you start to say to yourself, well, you know, this guy's making so much money. Maybe there is something to this. Maybe this is a new regime, right? So it starts to influence your thinking rather than you sort of staying on that notion of understanding the information content in those prices. And so this happens on both sides. I mean, you can think about the March of 2000 when the market was these extreme valuations for these particular set of stocks. And you can think about March of 2009. I mean, it was very scary. 
And, you know, there were scenarios under which we really were going to go into an even bigger tailspin. And people are very influenced by that. Uh, and so, so this is a key thing is to be able to make decisions independent of that influence. And uh, that's just hard. It's a hard thing to do. And I guess the other thing, just to, just, to make the, just to make the point just totally obvious, is at the top of the market, say March of 2000, that's the point of like sort of maximum psychological pull. Mm-hmm. That's the point when people are telling you it's going to be really awesome. And March of 2009, that's the point of maximum psychological pull on the downside. Like it can't get worse. And so, so in a sense, it's almost like the magnetic forces are at the strongest at the extremes. And that's why it's so hard to overcome this thing. So, yeah, that's, that's the thing. So it's, in markets, it's always try not to be influenced. Try to focus on that as information. By the way, I mentioned, you know, Ben Graham had a great section in Chapter 8 of Intelligent Investor. And, and he says basically um, – Investors may be better off if the market was closed, right? Like you don't even see the prices because then you don't get caught up in this whole thing. And, and he says basically for, for great investors, like getting influenced by prices is, is, translates your greatest strength or asset into a liability. Let me ask you a question about uh, what I would, would imagine would be your rivals in thinking about the markets. Fundamental investing is about finding uh, undiscovered or maybe underdiscovered value. Technical analysis is explicitly about things like trading on momentum. It, it explicitly is about using prices as information and influence. Do you think that uh, the technical guys are full of nonsense? You know, I, I really um, am I'm agnostic on this question to some degree. I, I, I think that I would say something like I believe that the way most technical analysis is used in the real world is not that helpful. So I would say that. But uh, that comment made, I think that there are some applications of technical analysis that may be useful. Now, you mentioned one that's quite powerful, and that's momentum. And, you know, if you look at the factors, when we talk about multi-factor models, momentum is probably the one that's most pervasive in different markets around the world. And I think there probably is a sort of a social psychological founding for that. And technical analysis may reveal that better than other methods. So, so I would not uh, – I don't want to dismiss it. I think the way it's used in real life tends not to be good. But there's probably something there. And again, those guys are operating with the one thing they know to be true, which is price. And that's just – that shows up on your screen. That's the real thing, right? So, so not a full disparagement, uh, but maybe not for you. Either. Yep. Let's go to number nine, position sizing, maximizing the payoff – from Edge. Uh, this relates to a point that you made earlier about how it also matters how much money you make when you're right and not just the number of times you're right or the percentage of the times that you're right. Uh, so how do you maximize the payoff from Edge? So Cardiff, I think this is actually one of the most interesting topics that doesn't get talked about a lot in the investment community. If you think about maximizing your, your profits, it's a combination of finding Edge, so something that's mispriced, and your bet size. Now, if you're a blackjack player or a poker player, you're intimate with this kind of concept. Those guys all know that. In the investment community, I suspect we spend 90-plus percent of our time thinking about edge and relatively little time talking about position sizing or how we bet. So the basic argument is that both of those things are really crucial, and uh, there are a lot of examples of that, but, but even the mathematics of how to bet are really interesting. So I'll give you, I'll just mention one thing. They're, they're sort of the classic way to build portfolios. If you go to some investment firm, is going to be mean variance, right? So this is, the idea has been around for a very long time. It basically says you're trying to get the highest return for an assumed amount of risk. But it turns out that mean variance is only uh, supposed to work when you're maximizing wealth over a period of time. 
So you're trying to get as much money as you can by December 31st, for example. By contrast, if you are parlaying your wealth, so the amount of money you have December 31st becomes your bankroll January 1st and so on and so forth, so you're parlaying your wealth, you introduce a different set of mathematics, something called geometric mean maximization or something called the Kelly, Kelly criterion, which is actually somewhat different. So there are some fundamental questions about what are we trying to do? Where are the edge? How much edge do we have? And then you can introduce other real-world constraints like liquidity and you know, sector allocations and drawdowns and so forth, right? So this is, a, I think, a really interesting area, largely neglected or it deserves much more attention than it, than it gets and super interesting. So it's both edge and position size that dictate ultimate returns. But I'll mention very quickly, I do an experiment with my students. Or I give them a form with 25 stocks. And I say, build a portfolio. It can be no less than five stocks. You can use them all. And then weight them, right? So you write down how much you're going to put in each for your portfolio. And then I hand them the second form, which is actual return. So how those stocks actually performed over a period of time. And you do this, and it's not atypical that one kid is up 70% and another student's down 30%, right? Same raw material, in quotation marks, but just by picking different pieces of it and weighting it differently, you get radically different results. So that is the idea here that I think is so important. And uh, you know, I think that the great investors do tend to understand this well. The rest of us tend to, to, to let, it, let it go by. Let me uh, ask you a quick follow-up question on that as well. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the difference between risk, which is measurable, and uncertainty, which is not. Uh, you raised the point about black swans in your paper and how these are events that essentially exist outside of the measurable, but that can have massive, unexpected impacts on on your portfolio and on your investment. What do you tell people about that? I mean, because that that seems like something where no amount of advice can really be all that, you know, all that helpful, all that concrete. It's just kind of a well, you might be screwed if this happens, and I can't really advise you on what happens if it does. Or you might get so lucky that nothing I tell you here today will be even even relevant. I mean, I always get a chuckle. One of the definitions of a black swan is something that was unpredicted. And uh, you often hear, like, strategists say, here are 10 swans for 2017. <laughs> it's like, by definition, <laughs> if you're predicting it, it's not a black swan. It's okay, self-negating. So, <laughs> self-negating. Let's just be clear about that. But just to take a step back, I mean, risk, and this is class of this Frank Knight, so it has nothing to do with me, but Frank Knight would say risk is uh, something where we don't know what the outcome is, but we know what the underlying distribution looks like. And what's important to bear in mind is that that's actually pretty useful for a lot of things in life. So, for example, we published a big piece in the fall about base rates of corporate performance. So I want to understand the distribution of sales growth rates or distribution of earnings growth rates or return on capital patterns, all that kind of stuff. Turns out, I mean, they're not perfectly normally distributed, but pretty, pretty close, right? And that's, gonna, that's not going to be the realm of black swans. Companies don't go from you know, $100 million of sales to $2 trillion, right? It just doesn't happen. So the, the point being, there's a continuum. Uncertainty is a case where we don't know what the outcome is, but we don't know what the underlying distribution looks like. And that becomes much more interesting. So there are even certain classes of, of distributions like power laws, right? So power law where you have very few extreme events and lots of little events. So earthquakes, for example, something that follow power law distribution, where we have empirical data on many things, but we don't really know what the exponent looks like. We don't really know what it looks like, right? So a big event by itself could shift the whole distribution. We don't really know. So that would be sort of this gray area. And then black swans, yeah, by definition, are high impact, and we can't predict them in advance. Most of what people talk about when they talk about black swans or really gray swans are things where we actually have a sense of the underlying distribution. 
but they're just extreme events. And almost everything in the markets now, you'd say, we, we know market distributions are, are, are fat-tailed. We know we have these huge events. We know the volatility is clustered. There are all sorts of empirical regularities we know about. If the market went down 20% tomorrow, we, it, it would be hard to say that that's statistically something we've never seen before. We've seen it a number of times. It'd be rare, obviously. It'd be bad, but it would be um, within, within the realm of what we know. So, yeah, I just think about it. So, so to me, you can almost have this continuum or sort of the classification of different types of risks or uncertainties or black swan events, and you want to just think about that effectively. Now, the other thing about black swans, I'll just say, when we, when we specifically talk about markets, is – the, the impact is very sensitive to your time horizon and your leverage, right? So I started in the business in 1986, 30, a little over 30 years ago, and obviously a defining moment was a crash of 1987, October 19th, 1987. Market went down a ton, right? If you look back now and you look at some long-term chart of the Dow or the S&P, it looks like a blip, right? So if you, if you lived through it, it was traumatic. It was, for sure. But in, in the scheme of life, it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. 2008, 2009, we all lived through that. Pretty darn traumatic, right? The fall of 2008 in particular, we had these incredible moves in markets, swings all over the place. Now you look back and go, doesn't seem that bad, right? <laughs> now that we're, we're, the markets are all much higher and the world's, for the most part, been on the mend. So, you know, this is, this is part, of, part of the way to overcome these things is, is time. And I think part of the point that Taleb makes, and this is even the point of Andy Fragile, is not only do you want to make sure that you don't get uh, – sunk by a black swan should it occur but maybe you even want to think about the opposite which is these extreme events might be you put yourself in a situation to let them help you right you reference taleb that's uh nasim nicholas taleb author of anti-fragile and the black swan who's been particularly influential here Mm -hmm. Um, okay number 10 uh read and keep an open mind right is there better advice (laughs) right so um so it sounds like a pleasurable way to spend yeah. Your time. Yeah, I mean, too. the question is, um, when you're an investment professional, there's so much information coming at you all the time, and you feel a sense of urgency to do something with all that information. That sometimes it it makes it very difficult to be able to sort of think about things a little bit. By the way, I was, I was with an investment team a number of years ago. It was at their offsite, and they surveyed their investment professionals. And you could do this not just in investing, any field. And they said, "Where do you get your best ideas?" The number one answer was in the shower. The number two answer was when I'm working out. And the number three answer was on an airplane. This is pre-iPods, by the way, or whatever. So what do those things have in common? The answer is you're by yourself. You're not doing something, right? You're in a sort of a contemplative mode. So to me, the great investors that I know are people who read constantly. Buffett's talked a lot about this. By the way, the student that I had that's gone on to be the most famous is Todd Combs, who's now at Berkshire Hathaway. Students go out and visit with him. He'll say, I read hundreds of pages a day. Mm-hmm. So for them, it's uh, Berkshire Hathaway headquarters is like a library. They're reading most of the time, right? They're doing much. And even Bill Miller, who I work with at Leg Mason Capital Management, Bill is an amazing reader, voracious reader, wide, wide-ranging reader. So to me, I think a lot of the great investors that I know are people that tend to read and not just, you know, 10Ks and and uh, articles, but also books. And um, so, yeah, I just think it's a great thing. And, and, and I always, this is the other advice I give to young people, if they can do it, is when you're young, try to work this into your life. Not, don't wait till you're old. Work it into your routine, whether it's a few hours a weekend or an hour to a day. Figure out a time to read quality stuff. And then the other thing about reading is read things that you don't believe, right? So you have a, a strong point of view on something, 
read someone who's thoughtful on the other side of the issue and make sure you're exposing your mind to that. So this idea of actively open-minded until you're, you're, you're making sure that you're balancing out that thought process. You still may stick to your particular view, but now you at least understand the other side of the argument and have an appreciation that a, a thoughtful person can come up with a point of view that's different than yours. Yeah. In between the last time you came on the podcast and today, we had a couple of other guests who talked about this a lot and that connect the two points between reading a lot and then making sure you have the contemplative downtime. One was Maria Konnikova, the psychologist and writer. The other one was Anders Ericsson, who um, pioneered the work on something called deliberate practice. And the points they made were that you need both. You need the really hard thinking, the frustrating thinking, the painful thinking, where essentially you get to your, you reach your limit and you can't go any further and you're frustrated. And then you make the breakthrough when you stepped away from it and you're thinking about something totally different, but you essentially need both of those things in order to have the useful, creative, and interesting psychological insights. Right. Doesn't, that, doesn't it feel like you're priming your brain to some degree? You're, you're giving your brain challenges, and even if you don't come up with it on the spot, you let your brain work on it while you're sleeping or while you're – it's such an interesting thing. And, I, yeah, I think that that's – Yes, although until it happens a few times, it can just feel like you're ramming your head against right. the wall. That's right. I mean, and that's the other thing. I just, and I even I don't know if we wrote it in the piece, but I say this all the time that often reading will lead you down what I would call intellectual cul-de-sacs, things that really don't benefit you immediately. But then you know you realize a couple of years later you're you know you're doing something. You go, aha! Oh yeah, that thing now I can pull that out of my my toolkit, and that is going to apply to this particular situation. So. And by the way, I mean, some people take much more pleasure in reading than others. So there are other ways to do this now with audio books and even podcasts. There are a lot of really interesting ways to get that uh, stimulation that may not be just pure reading in a book. But um, I, I guess the main point I put here is I think it is an attribute of great investors because we see the great investors do it. And the, and the, the people I admire the most typically are people who, who have this as a habit. Okay. Uh, those are the 10 attributes of great fundamental investors. Uh, I have a question about um, what we should do next because – in the paper itself, you have a lot of citations to the empirical and psychological uh, and economic and financial work uh, that supports each of these ideas. But it strikes me that it's obviously really hard to know how all of them relate to each other. It's hard to know how they all how they all support each other. In other words, in totality, uh, how well this uh, this could work to somebody who starts applying it right now. So I guess my question is, what kind of a research agenda? would be helpful to you now. What kind of a research agenda do you think that financial theorists uh, and economists and psychologists and other social scientists could pursue that could reinforce the points you make here? Or in some cases, as you said, we got to be open-minded, uh, that might um, play down some of them. So Cardiff, in the piece we, we write a little bit, and you mentioned Anders Ericsson, and it was in part inspired by some of his work, was how do we achieve peak performance in an investment organization? So I'm going to keep it, keep it on the topic of investing. And, but it's at really any organization. And the first thing to say is that you, this is all about process, just to be super clear, right? So we know that we're in a probabilistic world and a bit of a noisy world, so all we can do is control our process. And then you say, are there, are there maybe a couple key areas that we could do better? So there are four I'll mention. Number one is a selection of people, which is really interesting. So I think the investment community is very good at finding what we would call smart people. And that's their, their answer is they go to top universities. They tend to have good GPAs. So we know they have high IQs. And high IQs are really helpful for a lot of things. They correlate with a lot of good things in life. But there's an interesting dimension that has been introduced by this guy named Keith Stanovich called rationality quotient, RQ. 
And the, the core claim that Stanovich has is that IQ and RQ only partially overlap. And RQ is the ability basically to make good decisions, right? And, and one of the key elements of that is called epistemic rationality, which is the degree to which your beliefs map accurately to the world. So it goes back to our updating and so on and so forth. So, so here's an interesting, I'll throw this one out there here as an investment organization. Can we do a better test of selecting people, not just for IQ, but also for RQ? So that would be my first one. Second one, you mentioned Anders Ericsson, 10,000 hours, deliberate practice. What is deliberate practice for an investor? It's a really interesting question, right? So if you're learning to play the piano or learning to play tennis, you have a coach overlooking your efforts. They put you at the limit of your performance. It's really tiring. You're getting feedback that's accurate and timely. How do we do that for investors? Really interesting question, right? So are there equivalents to flight simulators that we can speed up the process? So I think that's an open question. That's a really interesting one. Third, big challenge big data, right? We're in a world now where uh, technology, data sets, quantitative methods are running all over the place. In the investment community, it feels like we've had a bit of a dichotomy between more quantitative folks that are using purely quantitative methods and still our traditional fundamental folks. How do we take the best of both of those worlds and combine them without the worst of both of those worlds? So can fundamental investors integrate quantitative techniques to make them better? That's an interesting one. And then the fourth and final one we touched, we touched on briefly a moment ago, which is how do I manage mental bias? We have to assume everyone's got them. Can we do something in our process to make sure we check it? And that's another, you know, as, a, as an architect of an investment process, that would be something I'd want to think a lot about. At what point, and it's, whether it's re- increasing my bands of outcomes to over, uh, offset overconfidence, if it's some specific methods to ensure that I do introduce new information into my thought process, whatever it's going to be. And those, you know, there's some techniques, by the way, some great, great techniques to do that that are out there. Most of them aren't implemented. This last question, uh, I don't mean it to sound uh, morbid in any way, um, but you had uh, 30 years in the business. Uh, what do you want for the next 30 years? What's next for Michael Mobison? Uh, yeah, I don't know. You know, it's interesting that, I mean, I, I, by the way, very lucky to do what I do, very gratified every single day. And so I would hope I can keep doing what I'm doing for a really long time. It's funny because I don't think I'll ever retire because the kind of business I'm in, it's all about thinking and writing and, they're, they're, you know, hopefully you can do that for a long time. And it also, you know, keeps, keeps, keeps one engaged. So, uh, so I don't know. But there have been so many, you know, profound changes in our business that are so fascinating. I think that's one of the things that's always attracted people to markets in general is that there's a constant sense of novelty, um, always something to learn, never master the task. And uh, all that stuff holds an incredible lure for me. And as I think about all the things we've written about and all the things we've dealt with, I think about the laundry list of things that I haven't talked about or thought about or worked on or that I would like to. It's, it's like my list of things to work on never shortens. It always expands. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll n- never know what next, next uh, tomorrow holds or next week. But, but it's, always, it's always about uh, I, I just will keep doing what I'm doing as long as I'm allowed to do it. Michael Mobison, thanks for coming in, man. My pleasure. But before we let you go, <laughs> uh, what's your long-form recommendation for our listeners? Well, I, you know, I mentioned this in our, in our discussion, but a book that I found to be very interesting was the book called Rationality Quotient. It came out in the fall from MIT Press. It's from Keith Stanovich, the primary author, uh, Richard West and Maggie Toplick. And this is the book that lays out 
a sketch of what is called the Comprehensive Assessment of Rational Thinking, uh, CART is the acronym for that. And there are a number of things in this book that are interesting. One is comparing and contrasting IQ to RQ, but also lays out the different sections and ways of testing for rationality. And I think this is another really interesting area that would be helpful for employers, as I mentioned, but also lays out a template for all of us to improve our own thinking. Um, what kinds of things can we do to be better? How do we become better probabilistic thinkers? How do we get better at updating our views? How do we make sure that we're believing things that are that are sensible? So that would probably be, it's, it's not an easy book to read. Like I say there's statistics and, and, and so forth, but very, very rich and I think really useful for the world. And we're back in the studio now. I'm here with Shannon. It's time for our long-form recommendations. Uh, Shannon, what do you think our listeners should be reading, watching, or listening to? Uh, mine is a little weird this week. I'm going to recommend an Instagram feed, but stick with me. And I think it is long. It's a long form content, it right? It can yeah. be. <laughs> All right. So sure. I'm going to re- recommend the Instagram feed of Pete Souza. Um, it's Pete Souza, S-O-U-Z-A. He um, is recently departed from the White House. Uh, he was a White House photographer for Barack Obama. But I also just learned he was the uh, White House photographer for Ronald Reagan as well. And he had an official account that's now been archived sort of the Obama years. But he, in his personal account, he's now sharing sort of pictures that he hadn't shared during the Obama years. But what I really love about it is he is telling, using it to tell stories about what it was like to work in the White House, what it's like to be a working photographer. And I just I love those sort of opportunities to get a glimpse into somebody's working life. And given that his working life is photography, Instagram is the perfect medium for that. So, Cardiff, what do you have for us? So I'm going to get a little bit insidery, but I hope people will still find this interesting. Uh, I'm working on a post about all the stuff that we've learned about hosting a podcast in the last year and a half or so. This is news um, to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I, I'm, I'm borrowing liberally from a lot of the other kind of podcast masters, right? Wisdom that was hard-earned, not necessarily by you and me, uh, but by other people in that um, I think we've tried to incorporate into yeah. our own uh, podcasting. And I'm going to recommend a couple of other podcast episodes, which were essentially interviews by great interviewers of other great interviewers, right? Right. So one is a really great long-form podcast episode with Terry Gross. It was taped quite recently. Terry Gross is, of course, the host of NPR's Fresh Air. She's amazing. Another one is uh, Debbie Millman's interview with Roman Mars, who's the host of 99% Invisible. That one came via the amazing Amy Keene, producer and editor of this podcast, And then finally, uh, I'm going to send you to another long-form podcast interview. Those guys are awesome. Uh, This one with Ira Glass, who was really kind of a foundational presence uh, in public radio. But I think he was also responsible for us being able to speak in this kind of quasi-naturalistic way, right? I mean, he was, I think, the first to do it. Uh, Or rather, maybe it was used before, but I think he's responsible for its being used so widely now. Yeah, he definitely did a lot to sort of move public radio in general away from that public radio voice. Exactly. Um, which I think we've all benefited from. And, and when you talk to people about podcasting, like, right, that's what's so appealing is that you do feel like it's an actual conversation. I should say that there's another benefit to this too. Uh, in addition to it sounding better, it's also just so much more fun for us to speak like this, yeah. right, than it is for us to have everything just be totally scripted. 
Well, and I think it, so there are people who are really good at reading scripted material and not sounding like they're reading scripted material. I am not one of those people. <laughs> um, and I can always tell uh, whenever I'm reading something that I've written down as opposed to just, just speaking off the cuff. Um, and it's definitely, there's a quality difference there. Indeed. All right. Well, I can't wait to read it and learn more about what we can learn. And that is the end of today's show. Email us at alphachat at ft.com. Give us a call, 917-551-5012. That is country code plus one for those of you calling from outside of the United States. Please rate the show and leave us a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Shannon is on Twitter at Shannon Parai. That's S-H-A-N-N-O-N-P-A-R-E-I-L. I'm at Cardiff Garcia. I can take no credit whatsoever for the magnificent stroke of luck that it took to get Amy Keene, producer and editor of this podcast, to collaborate with us on Alpha Chat. Thanks for everything, Amy, and thanks to our listeners. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. We'll see you here again next week for another edition of Alpha Chat. <laughs>